your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. The Gospel of Mark chapter 14. If you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand uh, and one of our volunteers will bring you the text. We want everyone to have it in front of them, whether it's digital or prayed. You need to see what we're looking at. Again, I don't have a great message. I just have the words of Jesus this morning. And we're going to try and take a look at those and let them speak to us. So go to the 14th chapter of Mark's gospel. Now, it's been a whole calendar year that we've been in the gospel of Mark. And uh, do you happen to know how long we've been in Jesus' Passion Week? Anyone know that? This is the last week of his earthly life. And we have been in this since May. So we've spent three months on his passion. And just to let you know, we're likely going to spend another three months on this one week of his life. Now, the question is, why? Why would you do that? Answer, because there's so much here. There's so much. It's his passion. These are the most important chapters in all of Scripture. And it's clear to understand this. This is the most important week in all of human history. This week, his passion. And so um, there's, Mark takes six chapters to lay the whole thing out. And so what we want to do as a church is over the next three months, and, and don't even hold me to that, but likely by Christmas, I'll guarantee that we'll be done. Okay? But what we want to do is we want to, we want to eat all the meat off this bone. Okay? Because there is a lot here. And I believe that if we do that, God will feed us. And I believe... God will feed us very abundantly this fall if we just spend this time dwelling and meditating and trying to live into the Lord's passion. Amen? All right. Whether you like it or not, it's what we're doing. Okay? (laughs) Just wanted to let you know. Okay. Today, we come to Thursday of that week. That's where we are in the passion narrative. Thursday of that week. I want to read our passage in its entirety this morning, and then we'll get into it. So pick up in verse 12. Try and imagine the scene. This is real history. This is a real account. Verse 12 reads this. And on the first day of of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, "Where where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as Jesus had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Verse 17, when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and said to him, one after another, Is it I? Jesus said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. 
end of the passage. Take a look back at verse 12. That's where we'll start. It says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, let's get a little history. The Passover festival is something Jewish families celebrated every single year. It was annual. And as a child, if you grew up in Israel, you knew that when springtime rolled around, your extended family would all come together and you would make the trek to the big city for this religious holiday. And so both Jesus and his disciples, their minds were filled with so many memories from past Passovers. They had a lot of nostalgia around this one big festival, just like we do with past Christmases, right? We could all get up here and share our nostalgia over Christmases when we were kids, maybe when Santa was still a thing, or as you got older, or as parents, or as grandparents, right? It's this one time a year, and it's special, and our minds are filled with memories, and that's how it was for Jesus and for these 12 young men. But this year, this Passover, springtime, probably around 33 A.D., things were going to be different for these 12 young men. Instead of, because remember, they've left their families. They've been on ministry tour for three years, probably going back every so often. But instead of reconnecting with their families this springtime to celebrate Passover, to make the road trip into the big city with aunts and uncles and cousins, they're going to spend it with their rabbi, with Jesus. And so that's why it says in verse 1, they come to Jesus and they ask him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat Passover? Now, let's get into the story. These young men, and likely they're late teenagers, maybe early 20s, they, they, their minds would have been on several things. They would have thought things like, well, my family always used to stay in this area of Jerusalem for the holiday, or my grandma always did the meal this way, right? You know when you first get married, if you're a married person and you spend Christmas with the in-laws, right, or Thanksgiving, and you start to notice how different things are and you quickly pick up on the vibe or you don't pick up on the vibe and you cross a barrier, right? You always remember that Thanksgiving or Christmas. You see, they had in their minds nostalgic expectations. This is how my uncle used to roast the lamb and so on and so forth. Okay, that's what they're stepping into. Now, let's remember something about the plot. Jesus and his disciples are in hiding right now. They're in hiding. Why? Because the authorities, the Jewish religious and political authorities, are trying to covertly arrest Jesus, and they're trying to kill him. They're trying to get rid of him. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 14. It reads, It was now two days before the Passover. So now we're back to Tuesday. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So they know what they want to do, but they've reasoned that it's best to wait till after Passover has died down to seize him and to arrest him. Otherwise, Jesus' arrest, because he was a popular prophet, leading really a populist movement in the wider region around Jerusalem. If they were to arrest him 
in public during Passover, it probably would have caused a riot. And that would have messed up their, their entire plan. So they say, let's wait till after Passover when the urban population has gone back down and we can arrest them more quietly. That's their plan in verses 1 and 2. But then something very surprising happens. Something these men did not plan for. These leaders, these high Jewish and political leaders, get a knock on their door from a very unsuspecting guest. Standing there was one of Jesus' own disciples. Take a look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And Judas sought an opportunity to betray him. This is gold for the chief priests. You have to understand this. One from Jesus' own circle is willing to give him up. This is perfect. Judas was now signing up to be a double agent working for them, working for the chief priest. They're paying him, and he's now waiting, it says in the verse, on the right opportunity. This is when he would relay back to these authorities when and where to ambush Jesus and arrest him. And so now G Judas is waiting for the perfect timing to sell Jesus out. You can imagine the nerves he would have felt. Other gospel accounts say after he makes this free will decision that Satan enters into his heart is what the language is. And so now he is a controlled man. He has welcomed it. He's decided that. And that is what brought it into his life. But now he is working for them. And not simply working for the chief priests working for Satan and darkness, okay? Now, the other disciples, the other 11, now remember, Bartholomew, Andrew, so on and so forth, they have no idea that there is now a mole in their midst. They don't know this about Judas. They don't know that he's gone there and made this deal and that he's waiting for the right time. And so this is the current state of affairs in the story. So that morning, go back forward, or move forward to Thursday, our passage today, Thursday morning, the disciples go to him, they say, where do you want us to prepare Passover? Remember, they're staying outside the city gates in a town two miles out called Bethany, okay? These young Jewish men, they knew their Bibles well enough to know that the law commands all Jews to celebrate Passover within the walls of Jerusalem. There was a geographic stipulation. It's in Deuteronomy 16. So they know, well, Jesus, we're out here in Bethany. It's two miles out. It's on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. We need to go to him as good disciples and ask, where do you want us to prepare? In the city, because that's the law. They couldn't do it there. Remember, they're staying at Simon the leper's house. Right before this is when that woman interrupts uh, the dinner party and anoints Jesus with the expensive perfume. So, because this is the law, Jerusalem each springtime was swelling with an overrun population because all of the Jews had to travel with their family into the capital. 
Josephus, a historian at the time, he records that in Passover 66 AD, so further in the future, but in the first century, 255,000 lambs were sacrificed in the temple. That's per extended family. So there's lots of people in the urban area. Okay? Now, because of this, there's a problem. There's a problem for Jesus and the disciples. And what's that problem? They're trying to remain hidden. They're trying to not get arrested and killed. And so what does Jesus do? He's, it's very practical. He sends two disciples on a covert mission into the capital gates to set up arrangements for Passover. Take a look. Verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us. We know from John's gospel that these two disciples are Peter and John. Now just get in their shoes for a moment. Can you imagine how exciting this must have been for these young guys? This was way different than staying with some boring uncle again at that part of Jerusalem and celebrating Passover. They're now being sent by Jesus on a covert spy mission looking for a certain man carrying a water jug who they're supposed to secretly follow to an unidentified location. That's what he just told them. Then they're supposed to say the code words in verse 14, right? It says, when you see him, say these words. The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? First thought that came to mind was just this. Can you imagine if Peter forgot the code words? Like if he's standing there and he's like, uh, the rabbi says, no, no, it's the teacher says, right? He has to remember these words exactly. And then when he says the question, Jesus says the owner of the house would quietly lead them down a corridor, up a flight of stairs to a secret room. And then it says in verse 15 that it's a large upper room furnished and ready. So this is a wild secret mission Peter and John are supposed to go on. All to make preparations under the cloak of darkness so that Jesus can slip into Jerusalem undetected later that night. And go straight to this upper room in secret. So the question, did it work? Verse 16. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. So Peter and John set out that morning, saying to themselves, first step, find man carrying water jug. That's what he said. First step, do this. It's like a, it's like a scavenger hunt. But Jesus, if you notice... And the text doesn't tell them where they're going to find the man carrying the water jug. Likely, they knew to go to the pool of Siloam 
In the city, this is where the urban population would draw drinking water and cooking water. But wouldn't there, this is my thought, wouldn't there be a bunch of other men carrying water there, getting ready for the meal that night? How would this one man carrying water really stick out to them? They don't have a name. They don't have a description. Just man carrying water, Joe. Okay? Reality is, uh, he, he, he would have stuck out for this reason. Typically, back then, only the women of the household would fetch and carry water for drinking and for cooking. So a man carrying water in that tradition and custom would have stuck, really stuck out to them. So it says, verse 16, they find it all as Jesus says. So they spot him. They're led to the house in secret. They, they, they follow him. They say the code words. And then they walk up a flight of stairs. The, just imagine this. The owner opens the door. And the whole thing is furnished and ready for them. I, I just imagine a smirk coming across Peter and John's face. Right? Jesus has done it again. It's exactly as he said it would happen. Now this owner, who is this man? Well, number one, he must have been pretty courageous. And he must have been sympathetic to this so-called outlawed Galilean heretic that the authorities are making out Jesus to be. He wanted to help. He wanted to shelter Jesus so he could celebrate this sacred meal in safety with his disciples. And this man likely prearranged the sacrifice of the lamb at the temple for them. He's probably having it roasted for them that morning and afternoon. He's cleaned and furnished the room with rugs and couches. You know what it's like to host Thanksgiving, right? Or to beat your parents and it feels like you're hosting it because here's the vacuum and here's the broom and let's get it ready. People are coming, right? This man has done this. He's getting everything ready for the rabbi and for his disciples. And now all Peter and John have to do is finish the other preparations. As it says in verse, verse 15, Jesus says, There prepare for us. Now these two men would have known preparations really well. It goes like this. Lamb, roasted lamb. By the way, anyone been to Mediterranean Grill? The lamb there is phenomenal. I'm sure it was even better than Jesus' time. Okay? So, and likely this man was a wealthy man. Likely he lived in an, the upscale neighborhood of Jerusalem because he has this whole open room that he can use to host people. He probably had a lot of banquets and stuff like that. So I'm thinking the food's probably pretty good. Lamb, unleavened bread, bitter herbs, spices, same thing every Passover, a dried fruit sauce to dip in, sounds good, and wine. Wine. Four cups of wine per person to be exact. Now, before you uh, want to go to Passover, wine back then isn't what it is today. Not the same kind of potency, if you read some scholars on it. But there was a rule in the Jewish custom, I believe it was in the Mishnah, and the poorest of Israelites had to be provided this meal, even the homeless ones. They had to be provided this meal and it says they had to receive all four cups of wine. There was wine at the beginning of the meal and there's this blessing and prayer. It's, it's a sacred meal. It's not, you know, like a party party. 
It's a party, but it's a sacred party. Blessing with the first cup of wine. During the meal, there was two cups of wine. It would end with another blessing and prayer and a cup of wine. And it says, even the poorest of poor had to be provided this meal. And so in verse 16, Peter and John, they took care of the preparations. All right? You still with me? Good. So all is now ready for Jesus and the rest of the gang to slip in under the cover of night. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 17. And when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Put yourself in the room. What a terrible way to start the meal. <laughs> look, look at the next verse. Verse 19. They began to be sorrowful. Right? What a terrible way to start the holiday. Jesus has just stopped the music with this announcement. He says, one of you will betray me to the authorities. That one of their own was a mole, a double agent working for the chief priest. He just says this, just out of nowhere, at the beginning of the meal. The disciples understand this. They knew that Jesus had a lot of strong enemies. And Jesus keeps saying that he's going to be killed. But they never, ever imagined that it would be one of them who would deliver Jesus over. And Jesus shocks all of them and says, one of you, the one who eats with me. In this room, imagine how awkward that got. This was supposed to be a fun holiday, and now it's turned. Now there's a dark cloud in the room. And imagine Judas. How does Judas get through this meal? He's squirming at this point. And then it says they all ask Jesus the same question after he says this. Verse 19, they began to be sorrowful and say to Jesus one after another, Is it I? In the original Greek language, that's more of a rhetorical comment. It basically says, it's not I, right, Lord? This means Judas would have looked Jesus in the eyes and said to him, is it I? Because it reads right in verse 19, one after another, that's all 12, asked Jesus this question. Judas clearly is trying to hold on and get through this meal. He probably didn't eat much that night. And he's bluffing his whole way through it. And so what does Jesus say back to them after they all ask the question? Verse 20. Jesus said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Now that's a strong comment. One who's dipping the bread into the dish with me. And that culture, that means one of my Intimate and most trusted friends will do this to me. One who dips the bread with me. Later he says in verse 21, he says, It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus here seems both mad, angry, and he seems sad. He knew the judgment Judas deserved, 
and he knew the torment that his friend would suffer because of this. So that's the meal. That's the room. Now, if you've noticed, we've skipped over something. And that's something that we've skipped over is the most significant thing I believe Jesus says the whole night. It's one phrase, and it holds the entire thing together, the entire passion of Jesus. So you see here, after Jesus answers their questions in verse 20, saying that it's one of them, he goes on to say in verse 21, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. The main phrase is the the, the first half, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Now what exactly does this mean? I really believe this is the key to understanding Jesus' passion, both from Jesus' perspective and from God's perspective, God the Father. This is what would have been in Jesus' mind the entire time. Again, it says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Written of him in Scripture. What then does this tell us? Here's the answer. That God wills this. That God wills Jesus' death. That God is accomplishing His will as it's already been written about in Scripture. Written by the prophets long ago. They're now fulfilling God's will on Thursday night. That this sacrificial and salvific death that's going to happen through a betrayal and through the murder by the state of the Jewish and Roman authorities, it was written about long ago in the prophets, and God is now fulfilling it. Not Judas, not the religious and political authorities, God. Now, Judas and the political religious authorities, they are free-willed human agents that are culpable for their decisions and crimes. But God has, in the midst of their free will decisions and failures, willed this forward since the beginning of time. This Thursday night meal, with all of its normal practical things I went into, and its very sad and uncomfortable vibe, has been willed and orchestrated and planned and resided in the infinite mind of Almighty God since the beginning. And Jesus, as his obedient son, is now freely submitting to his Father's sovereignty. Friends, we are now getting into the deep waters of the Gospels. I want to really lean into this because I think there's something here that we need to see. I think it's something that speaks profoundly into our, our own lives. This is why Jesus repeatedly says he is doing such and such an act of submission and fulfillment of Holy Scripture. You'll see it over and over. He does something or he says something or he predicts something. And he says, and this is to fulfill Scripture. That's why he says in verse 21, that, uh, that's what he says in verse 21, and that's what he says repeatedly in the Passion Week. Earlier in chapter 8, I want you to look at how Jesus talks about, 
talks about it when he warns them of his coming death. If we could go to that slide. It's Mark 8, 31. Look at how he says this. It should be on the screen as well. He says, And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Theologians call this the divine must or the divine uh, necessity. He must. It's God's will. And it's God's will expressed in their Bibles. Fast forward. Again, he talks about it in Mark 9, if we could go to that. Mark 9, verse 12. And Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. And then fast forward in the story to late Thursday night after the meal when Judas relays back intelligence that we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Perfect time, late at night. Come, ambush him. No one will know. Go forward in your Bibles in chapter 14 to verse 48. This is the moment where Judas betrays him. And he betrays him with a kiss if you look back earlier in the, in the passage. But pick up in verse 48. Look at how Jesus conceives of what's happening. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. That's his mindset. Let the scriptures be This is God's will, and I am submitting to it. So what we have here, friends, is two major themes in Jesus' life. And any life that is a believer who wants to live for his kingdom. And that is this. Sovereignty and submission. Sovereignty and and submission are the two threads that are working right here. And I want to show you how it works in Jesus' life, and then I want to show you how it works in ours. Sovereignty and submission. Important to understand this. Jesus is not a victim suffering a betrayal and tragedy. He is the Messiah fulfilling his Father's will. It's been written of me. I submit to it. He's saving the world by his obedience. Let me make Philippians 2 come to life to you in a new way. He's saving the world by his obedience. Philippians 2 should be on the screen. Who, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As it says in Romans 5, Jesus is not like the first Adam. He is the second Adam who doesn't ruin the world by his disobedience, but redeems it by his willing obedience. You see this thread in scripture, Romans 5. Should be on the screen. Therefore, as one trespass, get into this logic, led to condemnation for all men, 
So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus is not like the first representative of humanity, which was Adam, but is the new human bringing about a new reconciled humanity. So that now those who believe and receive Jesus as their Lord can become an entirely new creature. Pastors love to hype up things. I am not hyping up anything. This is in Scripture. That's a big statement that when you come to believe something supernatural, something on an existential level happens to the human being and they are, what does Jesus say in John 3? Born again to become a new creature or a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is what it means to be born again. You now have the same Holy Spirit that blasted the universe into existence, now living inside you. I'm not hyping that up. That is a wild thought to settle with. They say the universe is still expanding. It's still growing. Over 100 billion galaxies. I don't know what the number is. Like 70% is dark matter. We we can't even see it all. Mass. We're talking about infinite power. And the scriptures tell us you become a new creation and that same power in person is now merged and united with you. It also says that you're now reckoned a child of God, just as Jesus was. Look at Romans 8. Hope you like scripture, because here it comes. I'm just showing you, I'm not making these things up. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and as daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are now children of God. Anyone that's here this morning and still hasn't yet to believe and receive Christ, this is the offer. This is why they call it really good news. And let me clarify something. It's not because of your obedience and your quote-unquote good life that you'll receive such things, but it's because of His, His obedience. He is the one on Thursday night that submitted to God's sovereignty and saved us. And now with the same spirit of God that created the universe living inside you, he wants to train you as his disciple to do the same, to learn how to obey 
and submit to God's good hand of sovereignty. Can we go to that slide? John 14. Jesus says it very plainly. Oh, we don't have that. I got a Bible here. Here we go. You can flip with me if you want. John 14. Jesus is very explicit about wanting them to teach teach them and train them into obedience. John 14, verse 21. Jesus says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest or show myself to him. And then verse 23 gets even bolder. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That's obedience. And my Father will love him. And we will come to that person and make our home with them. Don't skip over that. That's a huge promise. That those who lovingly obey God's good commands for their life, it says that the triune Godhead of all will come and make his residence, his home, with you. What a promise. And how true that is. I can testify to just a tiny, minuscule slice of that experience. But those weeks, by God's grace and by His Spirit inside me, there's a sensitivity to God, an obedience to God, a a humility, a, a connection. Those weeks are markably different because the presence of God is with me in a way that it wasn't the week before. I remember being an agnostic, an 18-year-old, in my bedroom, sitting on the floor with my Bible saying, God, if you're real, show me. Manifest yourself to me. And I can tell you in my testimony, some kind of other thing entered the room. I wasn't a spiritual person. I was a fleshly 18-year-old. I had no taste of the things of the Spirit. But undeniably, a presence came into that room and overwhelmed my body and my mind to the point where after six months, I could not deny that a personal God exists. Jesus says, those who obey my commands, not perfectly, but that's the, that's the direction of their life, will make our home with you. The saints of the church, of church history, You should read their works. You should read their biographies. They have like modern English versions for us dummies. Like you can do it. They can attest to this experience even more. Brother Lawrence. Any of y'all know Brother Lawrence? Just raise your hand. There's a great book called Practicing the Presence of God. How am I doing on time? I got to hurry. You okay? Brother Lawrence. He was an old monk. I think it was the 1700s. And... He had this whole thing that he wanted to practice the presence of God. He wanted to be aware of God with him and all the things he was doing in his day. He was the cook for the monastery. So in his cooking, he thanked God for the, the food and this. And he just built this kind of relationship with the Lord. And if you know his story, he gets sick. And at the end of the, his life, he's bedridden. 
and he says something to the effect of, I no longer have to believe in God. I see him. I no longer need faith. I know him. He'd walked with God like that. And God had become more and more real as Jesus promises. He manifested, he showed himself to Brother Lawrence more and more over the decades. He says, faith is no longer needed. I see him, I know him. Here's the truth of the gospel, friends. You ain't got to be a monk. I did that. You ain't got to do that. It was good. You can be a cook. You can be a teacher. You can be a mom. But Jesus wants us to share in the same kind of relationship that he has with the Father. This is the greatest gift of our lives. And it comes through two things. Sovereignty and submission. I want to end on the note of sovereignty. This is the last major thought. Why do I want to end on sovereignty? It's it's because of this. It's recognizing his loving sovereignty in your life that allows you to submit to him. It's recognizing his goodness. That God is the greatest parent there ever was. That God is unconditionally loving and empathetic towards you. That God has plans and he has standards and he has holiness and truth. And he wants to grow you into those for his glory and for your goodness. It's coming to know how God's come through over your life. The more you can chart the hand of God coming through and permeating your life in different transitions and situations, different sufferings, the more you recognize that color, that thread, the more willing we're going to be to say, not my way, but yours. And you first need to clearly see it in Jesus' life because he is the exemplar of it. And then you have to recognize that the same kind of loving sovereignty now carries you. You're now his child. He carries you with this buoyant-like sovereignty that you need to recognize and to experience. It's one of the greatest blessings in our life. And so, again, over the next several months, you're going to see this sovereignty in Jesus' life. It's going to come out very strong. But I bet many of us could get up here right now and testify to God's loving hand in our life. We ought to do that sometimes. An open mic where many of us, we just pile up story after story in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sin and failure. We could share story and connected dot after connected dot of how the Almighty has sovereignly carried your life forward like a child. Because that's what you are to Him. I have to remind myself of that. I'm like a truth guy. I'm an idea guy. So like the teacher side and the truth side and the whatever side, the power side of God just comes so naturally to me. After I, 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 I like to address God as the Almighty and, and Lord because I think too often we have a small concept an experience of God. But, but the spirit, my counselor who lives inside me, often leads me to address him as father and remind myself that I'm his son and think about how I love and care and treat my sons and my daughter. You see? 
And it's when we do that that we submit. It doesn't mean suffering's not going to come. It doesn't mean sin isn't going to be involved. We just read the passage. There's lots of sin in this passage. But even in the midst of our sin and failures and mistakes, God still shows up. I like to call him the, the, the master magician who can spin our failures for his glory and for our good in the end. Just put yourself in God's shoes for one day. With all the sin and suffering, how much is he rearranging, spinning, coordinating things to keep this world together and moving forward? So I just call him the great magician. It's not a theological term I came up with. Maybe I'll write a book on it. But does anyone know what I'm talking about? God has been so good to you. God loves you. God has a plan for you. And that's what allows us to submit. That's what allows us to do what Jesus did. Last scripture, Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, even in the midst of suffering and confusion, you are called according to his purpose. Your family is called according to his purpose. This church is called according to his purpose. And so may his will be done and his kingdom come to Grace Athens as it is in heaven this semester. I want us to rejoice in the Lord's will this morning. And I want us to submit to it. And I believe as we do that more deeply over the years, we're going to watch God build a center and center for his kingdom here that touches Athens and Oconee. Amen? Amen.